Welcome to the circus. We're your hosts. I'm Emery. I'm Eric. And I'm Chris. Okay. Emery, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about COVID-19 and how the, uh, the U.S. has responded to it. The first question that Eric and Chris will discuss is how did COVID start and what could have been done to reduce the effects that we're experiencing? Would you like to start or would you like me to start? Um, I can start. I'll go for this one. Um, okay, so the CDC states that the coronavirus started in Wuhan, China. Um, the New York Times also um, states that in one of their articles. <coughs> I have one about the timeline regarding um, the coronavirus and this is a quote I pulled from the article, and it said, on December 31st, the government in Wuhan, China, confirmed that health officials were treating dozens of cases. Days later, researchers in China identified a new virus that had infected dozens of people in Asia. At the time, there was no evidence that the virus was readily spread by humans, and health officials in China said they were moder- monitoring it to prevent the outbreak from developing into something more severe. Um, so that's where it started. Um, how exactly it started, I'm not sure, like, those facts of, like, was it <coughs> the animal to human transfer? Um, but I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that. Um, in regards to the second half of the question, yeah. what could have been done uh, to reduce well, the effects? Wait, did she just get... Are we good? I think you disconnected for a second, but now I see you again, and I can hear you again. Okay. You can hear me good now? Yes. Okay. So, regarding the second half of the question, um, what could have been done to reduce the effects that we're experiencing? Um, I think a good precedent was set by New Zealand, um, and... I'll explain a little bit why, and then I also want to explain why I don't necessarily think it could have worked on the scale of how large America is, but um, it does have good components to it. So from the BBC, from a BBC article, um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, her last name is Ardern, um, said that, I'm sorry, enacted some of the strictest regulations in the world for which she would make no apologies. Um, Then a few days later, so this was in March of 2020, um, Ms. Ardern took the unprecedented step of closing the borders entirely to almost all non-citizens or residents. So it started with just um, residents of, I believe, China, and then it moved to Asia and some other countries before finally just shutting down the country from the outside. Um, at that point, people had to do a 14-day like isolation period within that bubble of either your household or um, the living quarters you had, and then anyone entering the country must do that 14-day isolation as well. Um, at that point, again, in March 2020, New Zealand um, had only recorded 102 cases and no deaths um, when the UK locked down at the same time, roughly, and it had over 6,500 cases. Um, and over 300 deaths. But to compare New Zealand and the UK is a little, 
is quite unfair just because of the population. So to put it in context, New Zealand has around 5 million people and the UK has around 67 million people. Um, so obviously larger countries are handling the coronavirus at like a very different um, angle just based on the population size. Um, but this was a quote from one of New Zealand's top epidemiologists named Professor Burka. Um, he said, if you do the British thing and waiting too long or keeping open too long, it balloons and becomes a major problem, which is costly on both the economic and health fronts, which I believe is true. So um, the way in which I see how we America could have taken some notes from how New Zealand handled it is I think if we had a better plan in America to <coughs> shut down and isolate citizens better as a way to try and get this virus out within the two weeks period the two week period in which New Zealand was trying to do um, I think we could have lessened the amount of time that we're still trying to fight the pandemic I mean we've been in it for over a year now um, and it seems like there's no end in sight because now we're just grappling between this half socially distanced half not socially distanced do we wear a mask do we not wear a mask um, sort of thing and you know, we're not really seeing a ton of progress in that in especially um, denser communities and stuff like that. But I guess in if I had to restructure how the coronavirus was handled, um, I would have wanted to do something that was closer to what New Zealand had done and do you know isolations I guess it, they might have had to operate between states just because the United States is so big but um, you know regulating who's coming in and out of the country and across state lines um, again I don't know if America would have fully shut down like New Zealand did because I if I'm not mistaken they had like the government send out care packages of food um, in order to keep citizens from leaving like they're homes would that be something good for america i don't know um but i think keeping grocery stores open and limiting and really having a strict time frame for you know high-risk people to go shopping and then a time for non-high-risk people to go shopping to kind of keep that separate um could have really helped as well so that's kind of my take it was all over the place but <clears throat> well, so I guess for the first part of the question, um, I found that the, uh, so COVID, I guess it made a jump from, um, I guess it was originally found in bats, um, and it made a jump to humans, uh, in a open air wet market in Wuhan. Um, and a wet market is basically where people go to buy like fresh meat and fish um, and some of the times uh, they even kill the animals like right there on the spot so it's not really the most you know like clean or sanitary uh, kind of market um, but I guess that's where they have deemed the culprit to be um, it kind of made a jump there I guess because of it's so crowded um, 
with people that it allows, or in like and animals, it allows the viruses from different animals to kind of like mutate and swap their genes. Um, so it can even mutate so much that it can infect like a human person, which is what they're assuming happened. Um, I think a big issue with it originally becoming as severe pandemic as it did, I think was kind of in part to China's misinformation and the uh, World Health Organization's kind of believing in the misinformation. Um, <clears throat> originally I found kind of a timeline of the World Health Organization's response and the China's response. Um, <clears throat> there was a Chinese doctor, uh, it's Li, I don't necessarily know how to pronounce his last name, it looks like Wenliang. Um, and he originally is the one that kind of noticed the virus um, and he warned his colleagues about it. Um, and he compared it to SARS, um, which is just a severe acute respiratory syndrome. Um, and really like the World Health Organization, it's kind of like their process begins when a doctor comes forward with something like that. So that kind of should have, you know, started the process, but it didn't. Um, China's government actually summoned him to Public Security Bureau in Wuhan um, and accused him of making false statements and disrupting public order and trying to cause chaos. Um, and then the Chinese Communist Party followed up his summons to the Public Security Bureau with numerous other arrests um, and basically put a ban on spreading, quote, rumors on social media. So anything that was kind of discussed on uh, COVID or anything like that was seen as you know, negatively discussing like China's government and their handling on it. So they didn't want to discuss, so they were even going as far to make arrests to prevent that. Um, and obviously, you know, as coronavirus progressed, um, the World Health Organization still kind of said that there was no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. Um, and after enough time, finally, the World Health Organization Director General um, flew out to Beijing and met with the Chinese president. Uh, and he basically praised China um, for setting a, quote, new standard for outbreak control um, and praised their openness of information. Um, and it was around this time where the original doctor, uh, Dr. Lee um, died from contracting COVID, so he was the original doctor that had spotted it and brought it about, um, but was arrested by the Chinese government and kind of ignored by the World Health Organization, um, and he ended up contracting COVID and died from it. Um, and eventually, the World Health Organization still was pushing, um, like most, I think, doctors at this point in it, or leaders in it, were pushing to declare a state of emergency, but it was delayed even further by the director general, the one who flew out to China, um, and was, you know, people at this point started to see that the data that China was giving did not align with the data that we were seeing from all over the world. <clears throat> that, you know, at this point we had seen a mass spread, it was spreading from people to people, there was, the death rates were going up. So a lot of the people at World Health Organization were pushing to declare a national emergency, but the director general 
um, still argued against it and delayed it even further, um, which just, you know, delayed even more the kind of benefits that they could have been providing the entire time. Um, so that all in all, I feel like that time like kind of just shows how botched it was at the very, very beginning. Um, I mean, and we ended up actually over that, uh, Trump pulled us out of the World Health Organization. And I did find the numbers for how much we pay to the world that we're, we're paying. So the World Health Organization assesses each country and their needs and all that and will pay kind of like a, you have to pay a certain rate, but countries can volunteer more if they would like, and most do. So the U.S. is assessed $237 million. Um, and volunteers $656 million every year. So they're, volunteer they're paying almost a billion dollars um, to the World Health Organization so they can obviously prevent stuff like this. And to give you an idea, that's about double what the next country pays. Britain pays an assessed fee of 43 million and a volunteer's only just under 400 million. Um, so we're paying over double what the next country is paying. And China only is assessed $76 million a year and does not volunteer any extra money um, to the World Health Organization. So I feel like that is kind of just shows that despite all the money we put in, it kind of, I think they really botched it. Um, and the second part of the question, what was that? <clears throat> You said the director general delayed further action. Is that, who? who's that? I didn't catch the name. Uh, first is, let's see, very complicated name. Tedros Adhanom Tabricius, looks like. And I'm probably botched the last one. Is the World Health Organization director general. Oh, okay. I was just making sure he works for the the Wu and not the U.S. government. Oh, what was that? You cut out? What was that? I was just clarifying that he worked for the the WHO? The WHO? Yes, who, yeah. World Health Organization. The WHO um, or the U.S. government. But <coughs> no, no, he works for World Health Organization. But it's basically funded by the U.S. Um, even though it's a national thing, I mean, the U.S. basically funds them. Like I said, we pay over double the next country. And it's actually interesting, I didn't include it because it's not a country, but the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is actually second on the list of contributions, and I think they contribute like $500 million a year. Um, so, But for the second part of the question, I guess what could have been done um, to reduce the effects? I think it would have been very difficult to reduce any effects. I mean, I think, you know, if early on we had caught it better and we figured out what it was quicker um, and we had a just better response in the very beginning, I think that could have made a difference. But beyond that, I think we haven't really experienced anything like this before. Um, so I think it would have made it very difficult to, you know, kind of do it differently. I think hindsight is twenty twenty, and I know in one of the later questions we'll kind of discuss what could be done in the future, but I think, you know, at the time, you, everybody was only doing the best of what they could do, and I think, like you're talking about uh, New Zealand, um, and like you said, I mean, it might not have worked here. I don't think it would have worked here, what they did. Um, I think 
we're just not only do we have a large population, but we're very diverse country, um, just in terms of like what each state needs and what each state is like and what the people in each state are like and the difficulties that would come with that. And I think we're just America's very vast, um, which presents a lot of problems for single country solutions. Um, and I think just like you had mentioned, even just the pop large population difference, I think, really makes it difficult as well. Um, I, yeah. yeah, I totally agree about like the size of America makes it very difficult to compare to like the smaller countries doing things that others might see as great. But I still think states could have, um, you know, mandated, you know, statewide on a better level to ensure who's coming over state lines, you could have broken that down into 50 individual um, mandates, but that were properly um, regulated and like overseen mm-hmm. to ensure that anyone entering over state lines for whatever reason is still getting a 14-day um, isolation period. Um, at the same time, the, I remember the first time I heard that if you had isolated everyone for two weeks, like the, pan- the virus would essentially be gone in theory. Um, but then I also have to think about those, the people that do have to go to work every day and that are, you know, truly living on dollar to dollar, paycheck to paycheck and like how that would affect them having to be isolated for two weeks. So I do think there, like you said, America is vast and complex and I think there's a lot more at play than just the ability to shut the country down and not let anyone move, um, Mm -hmm. for two whole weeks. So um, it's and something also, that I mean, at the same time, we have, I go off with people that have to work, even the essential workers. I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be hard. But the essential workers, you essentially, they're going to work still. And a lot of times, essential workers would get COVID. Um, and, yeah. you know, they might not realize it first, and then they're bringing it home to where their family's quarantining, and then they give it to their family. Um, which I think definitely ups a lot of the numbers and the causes um, and issues like that. Emery? Yeah, I, uh, I believe that the whole thing started with the bat in the market because I've heard a whole bunch of stuff about that. But furthermore, the like, preventing it from actually expanding or like getting as out of hand as it did uh, the two weeks thing only works if it's two weeks from the last time that you had a symptom it's not just two weeks from like the start of like everyone it would have to be two weeks from the last time that any person had a symptom so like let's say you're 100% healthy and then halfway through the initial two weeks you start showing symptoms, you would have to start that two weeks over. So the two weeks wouldn't really work in practice if everyone did it for two weeks. It would have to extend for each individual. Well, Well, New Zealand did it. They did it at the start when they didn't have, in theory, or like in practice, okay, theory, if you start it when you have as few cases as possible, the chances of it spreading faster are less likely. But if you start it 
when the UK did, or if you tried to start that now, it wouldn't, it would still continue to spread because there's some people are being exposed at different times. Well, so you don't really know. A big issue with that is a country like New Zealand can implement a policy like that a lot faster and a lot easier than, I mean, even the UK and the US is probably the most difficult country to implement something like that quickly and efficiently. Um, there's, I think, A, there's just a lot more pushback from Americans with that kind of stuff. I mean, when anybody feels like they're being limited to anything, people kind of push back, especially in America. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, they couldn't, uh, New Zealand, you know, from just hearing that there's a, a virus and it could be potentially dangerous, they could just, you know, flick of the switch probably, you know, get something passed or just, you know, stay home, stay indoors. But the US, I think they, it had to be like known as an emergency, like they were going to take all other options first which, looking back, you could say they should have skipped all that and just gone straight to, uh, you know, the most effective forms that we now know. But at the time, you know, if it could have been solved with something else, obviously that would have been the easier and better solution if that had worked, you know? Yeah, I could agree to that. But looking back, I wish America had just kind of done a quick the, the lockdown as soon as possible to try and... Mm -hmm not prolong the I guess the economic downturn we have and the like public health downturn that we're still fighting with so in retrospect um, what you're saying makes total sense like if there was another way to fix it that would be awesome but in retrospect I guess yeah so the hindsight is 2020 <laughs> alright you want to bring <clears throat> us to the next question Emery what is it the uh, next question was, how has the change in president altered the response to COVID? Yeah, so I don't think the response has changed much due to a, a change in presidents. Um, <clears throat> I think the presidents became like associated with COVID at diff very different points in COVID's track. I mean, Obviously, Trump was president at the very beginning and throughout probably most of the worst parts. And then Biden became president, you know, at more of a middle ground of COVID or, or more knowledgeable on the subject. And we've already been, you know, having plans in place and stuff like that. So I think it is kind of difficult to compare. Um, so I did kind of just discuss what has been done by the president. Um, so I think Trump, like we were kind of talking about what could have been done, I think he tried to leave a lot up to the states, because um, like I said, there is a lot of diversity between the states. Um, so I think kind of governors needed to choose what was going to work best for their state um, and not you know, ruin their state's economy or you know, fit their state best. Obviously in New York, you have New York City, a very populated area, a lot of people there. Um, a lot of close contact, I think. So what needed to be done in New York didn't necessarily need to be done down here in Florida, um, which ended up you know, kind of proving to be true. Um, so I think that was kind of a smart move, leaving a lot of it up to the states. Um, but he did do some like little extra orders. Um, 
obviously one of the first things he did was um, like a travel ban on people coming in from China, um, which I think actually was a pretty smart move, obviously, because every coronavirus originated in China, it was a pretty hot location. Um, and that obviously became more of an overall travel ban for a pretty long time. I mean, a lot of other countries implemented it as well. Um, I think it was kind of, you know, at first, a lot of people were labeling the travel ban, like a lot of news outlets, as, you know, racist, saying, you know, bit, like, stop people from China, you must, you know, hate the Chinese, stuff like that, which I think is kind of ridiculous. He was trying to make a decision to prevent the spread of a disease. Um, but, um, so I think that was one of the first things he did. He also put a few executive orders in the place. Um, one of them is, probably most people know, was the extra benefits for unemployment, which I think helped a lot of people out. Um, like when you were talking about earlier, Chris, about people not being able to take off work, um, I think the extra benefits, um, there's pretty large extra sum of money in there. Um, so that was one of the things he signed into place. He also put in some delays on payments, such as payroll tax. People could, you know, seek a delay on paying those. Same with student loan payments. I know during COVID that was something I didn't have to pay. My student loans, I did get a little break on having to pay those off, which was nice. Um, and then the same, he also put in an eviction ban, kind of, so um, to prevent people from being evicted during COVID times and stuff like that. If your lease was going to expire or, you know, if you were going to get evicted because you weren't paying, um, you know, sometimes it might have been your fault, sometimes it might not have been your fault, but rather than have to figure out what was what, he just kind of put a blanket ban on being evicted, um, which I think probably did help a lot of people out. Um, because I think if people were evicted during COVID, I mean, a lot of, I think the homeless population would have increased drastically. Um, and then going on to kind of Biden's response, I think. Biden kind of lucked out a little bit. I think he inherited a lot of the already developed vaccines. I mean, the vaccines were literally coming out right as the Trump presidency ended. So I think he kind of lucked out on that. And as the vaccines were just being finished and developed, uh, there were already some distribution plans in place for them. So he kind of inherited those as well. Um, so he did luck out on that, I think, as well. Um, I do remember one of the first things Biden saying when he was in office was that there was nothing we could do to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months, which I thought was kind of ironic considering most of the campaign, all we heard about was how he had a plan for changing COVID and squashing COVID. Um, and I think that that was kind of, you know, maybe a, a misspeak or whatever that was. Um, but I thought that was an ironic statement that he made after having bashed Trump for his response. Um, and then I know he did had said this was quite well, I'm not sure what the exact numbers are right now, but the trajectory he was referring to in that statement was the uh, study done projecting that deaths were gonna reach well over 600,000. So he was kind of just expecting that to occur. Um, he did have a seven point plan which, it, um, which is kind of one of the things he ran on in his campaign. Uh, the seven points, I'm not going to really go in depth on all of them. Um, but the first one was implement a mask mandate nationwide. 
ensure all Americans have access for free testing, fix persistent problems with personal protective equipment, provide clear evidence-based public health guidance, plan for all Americans to get treatments and free vaccines, protect older Americans and others at high risk, and expand the U.S. defenses to prevent future pandemics. I'll just touch on a few of those really quickly. Um, the mask mandates nationwide, I think that something we've seen, I mean, in a lot of places they're seeing, um, I think was already in place in a lot of places. Uh, I know just very recently down here in Florida, they just got rid of that. There is no mask mandate anymore. So um, we haven't really seen a nationwide mask mandate occur. <clears throat> um, another one I'll touch on here really quick. Um, let's see. The vaccines, um, I think, obviously, like I said, the vaccines um, were kind of already handed to Biden, um, as well as kind of the distribution plans. Um, I think that a big issue that if the Biden administration does want, you know, a well-vaccinated population, I think they're facing a lot of hesitancy with vaccines, and I think that they haven't really worked to fix that. I think that's a huge issue if, you know, if people aren't getting the vaccine, then it's not effective. So everybody, people, for a vaccine to be effective, everybody needs to take it. So I think they need to address, you know, people's concerns over the vaccine and do a better job at having people take it. Um, just because it's available doesn't mean it's going to be effective. Um, so yeah. So I didn't focus too much on um, on Trump's administration, more so on the Biden administration and their um, response to COVID. I will say that, you know, the two administrations did merge over each other. So a lot of what we're seeing in the Biden administration did start in the Trump administration. That, like, I don't think you can argue. Um, so I have an article from CNBC that just kind of runs through along. I think it's similar to the seven points, but it talks more so in the executive orders that were signed. Um, and just to name off the like key words. So the mask mandate, um, there was the tr public transportation mask mandate. Um, supply chain executive orders were signed. Um, let's see state and local support, COVID response office, um, data collection, new treatments, testing, reopening schools and business, um, and then equity as we saw in the second um, stimulus payment. I believe it, we, it was two, right? For the, yeah. So the second one, um, and that was kind of like, I think the biggest impact that the Biden administration had was that next um, like relief fund. So from the National Law Review, um, I they named off Biden's top 12 executive orders in relation to healthcare and COVID-19. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple of these off. Um, so Organizing and mobilizing the United States government to provide a unified, effective response to combat COVID-19 to provide United States leadership on global health and security. This created two new positions, which this kind of leaks into the next question 
a bit, but it created two positions to um, kind of help the future of pandemics in on this large scale and how um, our country can work to prevent that. Um, other ones were improving and expanding access to care and treatment. Um, so accelerate accelerate COVID-19 therapy development and improve access and to quality and affordable health care um, was another one. The mask mandate on travel, so on, I think it's... On all public transportation. Let's see. A sustainable public health supply chain. So the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of HHS, and the Secretary of Homeland Security, among others, are directed to create a pandemic supply chain resilient strategy by securing necessary supplies, pricing, including critical materials, treatment supplies, and resources necessary to produce and distribute tests and vaccines at scale, um, protecting worker health and safety, so orders of occupational safety and health administration to revise the guidance of workplace safety during COVID-19 and launch a national program that will increase enforcement on workplace violations. Um, all of these kind of orders that go into place, especially like the last one talking about like worker um, health and safety, a lot of that while in writing it's great practice, um, like in actuality or, or in reality, might not always come off the best. Um, I know we were talking about people working in highly populated um, jobs that would be considered essential workers, um, and a lot of times those were the places hit the most. Um, and I would argue that a lot of those places aren't treating the virus as seriously as they should have been, um, which probably led to a high number of cases in those densely packed um, places. Um, and yeah, um, like you said earlier about a lot of the stuff started in the Trump administration, I think that's still really important to note. And, um, but I do think this escalation of vaccines to America is much faster than anything I would have imagined. And I mean, could you say so? Like, I didn't think people were going to be vaccinated as fast as they are. Um, no, I, I don't think I'm surprised by it. Uh, <clears throat> I think this was something that's been... I mean, they've been trying to develop these vaccines for, you know, months now. Well, probably actually a year. It probably, I think probably going to take a year. Do you know how long probably. it was? I think close to a year. Um, and I think that they were working with extreme diligence, you know, when trying to do this. They were definitely wanting to do it quickly um, and get it right. Um, I think there's a lot of incentives for the companies that were able to do it, so... Um, I'm not really surprised. I mean, like I said, it was right at the end of the Trump administration that they had developed them. <clears throat> um, mm -hmm. and I then, so on the yeah on the yeah. times they have like a running tally of the U.S. vaccination percentages. Mm -hmm. um, right now, forty percent of the population is at least 
one dose in and 35% of the population is fully vaccinated. That's just in the US. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's see, in in the world as of today, um, there has been 1.32 billion doses administered. Um, So that's 17 doses for every 100 people. Obviously, that's not spread out evenly through countries, but um, I think I think yeah. the numbers that the fact that they're continuing to grow is something that I'm happy about. And I know you were talking about how we have to have like that herd immunity, and if people aren't getting the va- the vaccine, then there's kind of no point to it almost. Um, and I I would argue that a lot of how the media has covered the coronavirus in the past year also plays a huge part in why people aren't getting vaccinated. Um, And I also think people's mentality on the fact that they won't get vaccinated and they won't, it's like that us or them mentality again, and it's people aren't getting vaccinated for the right reasons. Um, You know, I'm vaccinated and I want to do it so that Um, you know, we can stop wearing masks and we can get back to what we all remember as normal life. Um, Mm -hmm. but that's... We live a very different life in Florida. Um, like as compared to other states, I think. I mean, I know like from my personal experience, um, recently I've mentioned a few times of being in Florida in this podcast. Obviously, we all live in Florida. Um, but... I think a lot of my friends who live in New York, their experiences have been completely different from mine. I also have a friend who lives in DC and her experience has been very different from mine. I think I've, there was, I know some change, obviously, especially during the, I would say like the key to the, the prime of the pandemic. Uh, I think that obviously, you know, was definitely like a life change, but I think very shortly after that, it wasn't very long lived where we were in pretty much complete lockdown. Um, I think I felt like almost almost to normalcy for a couple months at least now. I besides the mask wearing, you know, and in, in you know Walmart or at work, but very recently we actually stopped even having masks at work. So I almost am, I feel like I'm back to a normalcy. Which, I, like I said, is probably pretty exclusive to Florida. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, Florida's a pretty populated state. And I think when you have a state that probably a lot of people feel like that, I mean, they're probably not going to get vaccinated. People are, you know, people think we're probably right on the verge of being back. And I think that's very, like I said, just exclusive to our state. Yeah, I would also argue that... I don't know, maybe that goes back to like the, how I was talking about the oversight that should have been had or started at the beginning of um, the virus in while, you know, letting each state determine how they should handle the virus, you know, having oversight on how, on how they're operating so that it's easier to kind of bring all of the states back to normalcy at the same time rather than you know, one state starting at the beginning of the year while other states are still, you know, level four lockdown or level three or two lockdowns um, and the ability to still travel between them. I just think... Well, I think another thing... 
is the when it really picked up in each state. I think it picked up faster in some states than others. Which, I mean, with the Florida thing, it's kind of Florida actually started late. The the real mm -hmm. prime of it, um, way past New York. I think people were saying Florida was like lagging two weeks behind New York, um, but obviously we're still less locked down. Florida's actually number twenty nine in cumulative cases um, for COVID nineteen adjusted by population. So even though Florida's had probably one of the least strict responses, we're actually falling behind a lot of the, well, falling behind in a good sense, you know, less cases mm -hmm. um, than the states that had the extremely strict policies, which is kind of interesting to think about. And actually when you're looking at deaths, but for COVID, it's actually even less in Florida. So we have less cases per person, but by, if you were to rank the states by death per population, we actually are even better ranked than even just by cases. But does deaths have... The deaths per case, so like... Um, I, I know, but does that really have any... Does that really matter in terms yeah. of like... I mean, I mean it, yeah, yes, it's the deaths. I mean, it means that... I know, I'm not saying hey, like these deaths don't matter being identified with COVID faster, so they're treated quicker, they're being treated better, they're whatever it is, I mean, but when you have less deaths. Is that related directly to that though? I mean, people the can Florida's, die from COVID because they have other, they have other um, health issues, but like, I don't think that's necessarily yeah, but you're looking at a large population. I mean, and especially if you look at Florida's population, Florida is a lot of elderly people in comparison to a lot of other states. I mean, Florida has a very elderly population. So the fact you would believe, I mean, it would make sense that Florida would actually be higher in deaths. I mean, you have a very... Well, I wouldn't put that very solely on the population. fact that... I wouldn't say that solely just based on like, oh, if we're treating quicker then we're saving more people that could be one instance of why we have less deaths but i don't think it's the like complete reason if that makes sense well, what would you think the reason would be well i'm just saying like how many people you know like people are asymptomatic and are not dying people are completely healthy and not dying so just to say that florida's like healthcare system and response to new cases is well, you're looking at like so a much better million of people population that these numbers are boiled down from like yes yeah, so like if you were looking you know like very small groups like of people you could say yeah well maybe that group had more you know, underlying conditions or that group is more asymptomatic. But you're looking at like an entire statewide population. I mean, the sample size is, is massive. You're not gonna have that much variance in between New York and Florida of people with underlying conditions. And if anything, like I said, I believe Florida would probably be worse because of just the, the large elderly population um, as far as deaths go. There shouldn't be mass difference between people's health conditions in between two states like that. I'm looking at the deaths compared to Florida and New York right now. 
Okay, Florida has had... Total deaths, 30, I think, 30,000. It says 30, almost 36 on... on and New York, so I think, is over 50. New York is also... Isn't it much more populated? That's why I was looking at the per population death rates, um, but it's still a lot less. Eight and a half million in New York and no, they um, roughly have the same. Yeah, I was going to say they're probably, it looks like they're roughly the same. And New York has, I think it was like it was 20,000 more deaths. So that's what I'm saying. You see a 20,000 death increase. Why, why does New York have 20,000 more deaths? I don't think it's because 20,000 people have underly more underlying conditions than in Florida. No, but what are, okay, what's the, like, what's the word for the space, like, the amount of land? What do you mean? Like, the, the duration? Like, no, no, no. The time? Like, no, no, like, Florida is this big in land. What is that word? Uh, um, area? Yeah, but that wouldn't. If anything, that could you could. If you have the maybe. same population, it no, it makes sense. If you have the same population but less space, it's well, obviously. Well, no, you could make the more. case. You could make the case that maybe New York has more cases because of that. But New York was on strict lockdown. I'm like I'm saying, you could not. You could not go out. There was, there was nothing. It was a ghost town. Absolute ghost. Yeah, but you're still like living in such close quarters. Like, yeah, think about essential workers doing food. Anybody. All right, if if we're going by that logic, then let's take into account California, because I think California had nearly sixty thousand deaths, and it's a lot larger than Florida. And again, a state that had mass lockdown, mask, mask, mass, mask mandates. Yeah. The. California is 164,000 square miles, approximately. Yeah. California has, is ranked number 33. So case-wise, it's actually less than Florida, um, but death-wise, it is a lot more than Florida. Total deaths. California is the highest death count in yeah, and again, I think when you're looking at total death count, I think, again, I think California probably just didn't have a good system in place. I mean, I think also California's death rate could be tied into their mass homeless population. Um, it's probably a big, big factor, actually, in that count. But yeah, I was just saying, you know, back to kind of the original point, I was just thought it was interesting that um, like I was saying, how I was talking about how the U.S. is so diverse statewide that, you know, Florida is kind of 
getting back to more of a sense of normalcy um, as opposed to a lot of other states and Florida happened to be one of the states that had a more lax like plan when it came in place to COVID um, as far as like masks and you know lockdown orders and stuff like that mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of an yeah, interesting no. point but no that's a good point <clears throat> But anyway, we'll move on to the last question. Emery. Emery. The last question was, given the knowledge we have today, how can we prevent a repeat of COVID? Am I starting? So, um, first and foremost, I think there needs to be, like, there needs to be a committee, there needs to be staff, there needs to be some sort of team working in the United States to um, work on how to prevent these things from happening. Um, and I wanna bring everyone's attention to a PBS article I found, um, and it talks about the pandemic team or the pandemic playbook that was left behind by the Obama administration. Um, the document, which was found by Politico in March of last year, is a 69-page National Security Council guidebook developed in 2016 with the goal of assisting leaders in coordinating a complex U.S. government response to high-consequence emerging diseases, emerging disease threat anywhere in the world. It outlined questions to ask, who should be asked to get the answers, and what key decisions should be made. Um, now, I'm not saying that I haven't read this playbook. Um, I have the full document on my laptop. Um, I'm not saying it was, you know, the end-all be-all, but I think it was a good start, and for it to not be um, brought through the Trump administration is kind of silly in my mind. Um, like, how can we not have a better response to public health um, when look at the chaos that has been created from it? Um, so I think generating a team of people to get behind this early and work on public health and public safety and to help prevent this from happening again would be a great start um, in in that um, but yeah that's my like brief opinion on that okay um, I mean I think we kind of discussed a lot of this in the first kind of one where we're talking about what could have been done to prevent originally. I think a lot of the things we think we should have done, obviously, we should do if this would ever happen again. Um, I think like a big part of what I was talking about was quicker identification. Um, I know Biden wants to rejoin the World Health Organization, which I think is kind of a mistake considering how botched they did with coronavirus. I mean, their entire existence is literally to prevent things like this from happening, which they did a terrible job of. Um, so I don't know why we would rejoin and pay them a billion dollars a year. I think maybe we could just, you know, figure out our own organization and do that if he wants to develop his own. I know I think he may be doing that. I think that would be a much better idea than rejoining the World Health Organization. Um, I also think, what was that? continue. Okay. Uh, I also think a big issue we had with coronavirus was the 
production of the PPEs, the personal protective equipment, like masks, I think at first they were extremely hard to get. I know now you go into a store and they're selling masks everywhere. Um, but <clears throat> I think originally, like, nobody could get their hands on good quality masks. I mean, and the big thing was, you know, especially healthcare uh, workers and stuff like hospitals, um, all of them needed the, the N95 mask, and I think a lot of them couldn't get them. They were just, I mean, obviously the, the world was demanding them, but I think if the U.S. had um, somewhere set up that they were producing them or manufacturing them, um, maybe it would have, A, saved, you know, us money doing it, which would be an extra benefit, but I think obviously it would have made it a lot easier for our hospitals to get them instead of waiting in line behind other countries who we were buying them from, you know, I think wherever we were going to buy them from was probably giving them to their, themselves first, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I think that was another big thing. I think we had better production of that kind of stuff. Um, and then I was going to say, like how you were talking about, if in the first, you know, like week of Corona, we implemented those lockdowns, um, it would have been a lot more effective. I, but yeah, I think a faster implementation of like social distancing practices and that kind of idea um, would definitely go a long way. And I think if we ever were to see something, even if it wasn't as drastic as COVID, but I think it's also possible that, you know, this could be kind of scared a lot of people. And I think that if there's something that kind of came up that could be sought as potentially like COVID, I think they would probably just implement those right away, um, regardless of waiting to see what it's going to turn out to be. Um, so, yeah. I, the one thing I would like to argue is that I think moving forward, this, this idea of public health and safety shouldn't be a single country issue. While I do think each country should have their own committee or team or set of professionals dedicated to, you know, public health and epidemics and pandemics, I do think those committees need to work together so that, um, you know, what we saw with the WHO and their response to COVID and, you know, what seems like not truthful or just information not being shared um, amongst countries to help prevent that sooner. Um, I think the communication between countries needs to be stronger so that these things um, aren't impacting the entire world next time. Um, well, I think an issue is that when it comes to stuff like that, um, like we, even like the UN or the World Health Organization or uh, the Paris Climate Accords, I think all of those things have in common is that the US is always the biggest contributor. Um, in a lot of cases, like by large margins. I mean, like when I was discussing the World Health Organization's funding, um, I mean, it was this virus, it wasn't China's fault, but I think. Uh, you know, they played a huge role in the beginning of kind of misinformation, um, which I think severely affected the outcome. And they are in the World Health Organization, but only by band-aid. They volunteer no extra funding. Um, you know, and obviously China has a very large country with pretty good economic standing. They could definitely afford it. I mean, the U.S. is trillions of dollars in debt, and we still make the contribution. So I think a problem is that it usually, with stuff like that, ends up the U.S. just kind of providing support for countries that don't provide support back, which I think is 
an issue. Mm-hmm. It still but doesn't change my change. Oh yeah, but no, I know what you're saying. That public would be health is is a global issue. If or needs to be think, global. Yes, issue. if there was an organization, or if kind of the countries were willing to, you know, help in the same way that the U.S. does, I think it would actually be very beneficial. Uh, but I think the the issue is that just they don't. Yes. We need a non-for-profit global organization. Well, not for profit. <laughs> they take donations, just million-dollar donations from countries. Billion-dollar donations, almost. No yeah. profit. Well, they use that, but yes. <laughs> All right. Any any other comments? Well, I feel like. Uh, U.S. rejoining the WHO uh, actually beneficial, not necessarily for the U.S. in any regards, but let's say uh, some third world country is experiencing an outbreak of a new strain of the flu, and the billion dollars that we donate is all that the WHO needs to fucking come up with enough vaccines and enough, like, medical stuff to help this third world country. Like, I don't feel the U.S. benefits enough from the WHO to justify the billion that we give them, but all the other smaller countries that can't afford to donate as much probably benefit way more because we're able to give. So I feel like the billion dollars we give is beneficial to them, so we should definitely continue to do it. it. It's not like we're paying for nothing. Like, obviously, the U.S. gets a little bit from it, but it's more so like we're donating to a charity to help other countries, not so much ours. That was well put. Yeah. I agree okay. with Emery. Any other comments? I'm okay. Are you already putting your AirPods up? That's a wrap. That's a wrap. No, I'm just holding the case for the AirPods.